Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. It's the end of May in Ohio, which means constant thunderstorms, sporadic flooding, and occasional sunlight. The flowers are opening up, some restaurants and stores are starting to open back up, and there's sort of a sense of rebirth, even if it's a very tentative rebirth. To celebrate that rebirth, today I'm talking to Scotty Edler, an adjunct professor for SNHU and for the community college system in Texas. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, including Scotty's pursuit of a Master of Science degree in political science, his historical research into Kaiser Wilhelm II and the Second German Reich, the history of Mardi Gras, his experience with local and state politics, a cool-sounding potential project on political polling, that's quite a tongue twister, and his career in teaching. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Scotty Edler, and I am an adjunct history instructor at Southern New Hampshire University and also a history and government adjunct instructor at multiple community colleges in the state of Texas. Great. And we'll probably talk about the uh, those positions a little bit later. But for now, can you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Sure. Um, I graduated in 1998 from Cape Henlopen High School. It's a small rural um, high school in Lewis, Delaware, right on the coast of the Delaware Bay. Um, most famous right now because um, our uh, one of our most famous alumni is in a major movie right now, and that is that Just Mercy, um, or I believe it's Just Mercy, or uh, with uh, Brian Stevenson. So we've been getting a lot of press over that over the last couple of months. Um, yeah. And it's there, actually, that I really became interested in in history. Um, I had a really great U.S. history teacher who, on the side, was also an adjunct at our local community college. Her name was Elizabeth Ducharme, and she pushed me into studying um, college, uh, to studying history on the college level. Problem was, I wasn't a really good student in high school, and so when it came time to graduate and move on in 1998, um, I ended up going to Delaware State University in Dover, Delaware. Uh, Good school, but definitely a lot smaller, less prestigious than I had wanted to go. I I was like everybody else. I wanted to go to Harvard or Yale, obviously. But when I was at Delaware State, I was a, a, I'd I'd say, a social studies major. I I wanted to be a, a school teacher. And while I was there, I met a very good mentor by the name of Dr. William Henry Flayhart III. Um, he was a known maritime historian. He was also a Napoleonic expert. And he had taken me under his wing. And very quickly after I had gotten there, maybe one or two semesters, I started to really excel in college. You know, I went from I'd say B C grades in high school to straight A's in college. And as I was doing that, I really just became absolutely in love with with the subject of history to the point where I dropped the social studies education. I decided that I would go on, get a master's degree and, and continue up the, the ladder. And so when I graduated from Delaware State with my Bachelor's of Arts in 2003, um, main focus in European history, I then went to Midwestern State University, which is located in Wichita Falls, Texas. So you can understand that I went from Dover, Delaware, the state capital of an East Coast um, school to the middle of nowhere. Um, (laughs) 
and Wichita Falls, it, it's a very nice place. I don't, I don't want to down it. It's got a great Air Force base there, Shepard Air Force Base. But it was t- a, a complete culture shock. Um, mm-hmm. But while I was there, I, I, I did very well there. Um, my mentor there was a guy by the name of Dirk Lindemann, Dr. Dirk Lindemann. He was an expert on German and Spanish history. And by the time I got my Master's of Arts in History in 2006, I mainly focused on European history. The three areas of European history I focused on mainly were modern Germany, 1871 to present, czarist Russia, um, Tudor Stuart England, and modern Europe overall, anything modern Europe, 1700 to present. I, I did have to pick an American subject just because in Texas you're required to teach a, a U.S. history. All, per, all history professors have to teach freshman level U.S. history as well. So hmm. my American field is Reconstruction and Gilded Age. I mm-hmm. do use that quite a bit because I do teach the U.S. history every now and then. So it did come in handy. Um, one other thing I did um, in 2014 I took a step back and decided to get a political science degree, or at least 18 credits, so that I could teach it on the college level. And I did that at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, in Omaha, Nebraska. I have not finished it yet. I'm now just taking my time now that I have the 18 credits to teach it. But I am planning, hopefully within the next year or so, to complete my Master's of Science in Political Science. So... Um, and, and actually one of the people I get to, I I have studied under, um, was former secretary of defense and former Senator Chuck Hagel, which is kind of neat. Um, you don't often get to study under a real newsmaker like Chuck Hagel, but so that was kind of an interesting thing in my academic career. I've actually toyed around with the idea of going and getting a political science degree. I, I all of my degrees are, are just straight history. And so I'm curious. I mean, what do you what do you think of that type of a program? Is it? Do you think is it? It's a master of science, so it's obviously different from an MA in history. But do you? Sure. Th- how would you compare the two? What What do you What are you thinking of it now, now that you're most part way through it, or at least most of the way through it? Yeah, I, I think I'm 20, 22 or twenty three credits in now. Um, so I, I've passed the the threshold for teaching for a while. I've been teaching federal and state government for a while. The thing I the thing that makes a master's of science different than a master of arts is the language component. Realistically, the mm. fact that instead of having a foreign language, you have to have some kind of research language, and in that case, it is um, statistics. Mm. So, I actually have friends, believe it or not, who have masters of sciences in history, which to me just blows my mind. <laughs> but a master of science in history, the difference is, is instead of having the required language skills, they then took something like statistics that counted in that in in that place. Sounds weird. Um, yeah. But when you're doing a dual masters, if you're doing an MAMS, it kind of is nice because you don't have to do both. You can choose one or the other. Now, I don't know if you can get a Master's of Arts in Political Science. I hadn't looked into that. I, I just know that you can do you know, an MS in History and Political Science. But really, the mm-hmm. only difference I have found in that Master's of Arts in History, Master's of Science, Political Science, 
is the different language component in that it's a research language statistics instead of Spanish or French or Portuguese. Mm-hmm. And is the uh, program itself or the course of themselves set of kind of similar where it's basically reading seminars? Basically. Um, so it's a completely online program because obviously I move around quite a bit with my wife, or at least we did. And so I wanted somewhere that I could go where I didn't have to be similar to like our students here at SNHU, where it doesn't matter where you are, you can be in Fallujah or you can be in Moscow or you can be in Milton, Delaware, and you can still be doing your academic work. I wanted something like that. Um, And I started this in 2014. So a few years before I signed on to SNHU or yeah, SNHU. And I really liked it that most of it was um, self-paced reading, reading courses, um, a major paper. And and that was essentially it. And, And so I really, really kind of enjoyed that because, you know, so many working people can't just take off and go get another master's degree, especially even if you're a college professor, you can't just take off and go get another degree so that you can teach more classes. You almost have to take time off or maybe take a sabbatical in order to get that, those qualifications. So this was a nice way of being able to still teach and get that extra certificate so that I could teach more classes at the local colleges that I, that I was at. And so when you were doing your, uh, your MA in history and so far in your MS in political science, what research projects have you been involved with? What, what are your top, you mentioned some of your interesting topics that you covered in your MA program, but when you were writing up like a thesis project, what were your, sure. what was your topic there? Well, the, the title of my thesis was the fall of Wilhelm II, the last German Kaiser, a 21st century assessment. I did that back in 2006 and it was quite a large project. Uh, There was only one other uh, master's thesis at Midwestern State that was longer than mine at the time. I believe text, it was 162 pages for a master's thesis, which (laughs) is, that's a little large. I mean, normally you're trying to stay 70 to 100 pages. Right. Um, But I, but I had over 120 sources and more than half of them were, were primary sources, were firsthand accounts or letters or speeches. And the whole point of the the project was that throughout the the 1900s, the 20th century, people were continuously blaming the last German Kaiser, Wilhelm II, that he's the reason that Germany went to war and that he's the reason that Germany lost the war and vilifying him um, and talking about this autocratic German monarchy that existed in... uh, Will Wilhelmine Germany from 1871 to 1918. And so what my research did was outline the true power structure politically of the Second German Reich. Uh, it dispels the myth of this autocratic Germany. It, it, it shows that Germany may not have been a liberal democracy. It may not have been a liberal constitutional monarchy like the United Kingdom. But it was a constitutional monarchy. It was a conservative constitutional monarchy with with separation of powers, just like the others. But that it was more of a conservative society. And, And with that, 
you have to you have to say then that the last German Kaiser did not have full authority under the traditional guise we give him with the narrative after the Treaty of Versailles. I mean, Woodrow Wilson himself, who was a political science and history professor, did not quite understand how Wilhelmine Germany worked in 1915, 1916. He even believed that the Reich, and in this case, we're talking about the second German Reich, not the Hitlerian third German Reich, that he even believed that this was a absolute monarchy and that the Kaiser made all the decisions and the people just did what he told them to do. And so when you look at it from that respect, when you look at it, that, that there was a parliament, the Reichstag, the Reichstag and the Reichrat, that, you know, had very wide ranging powers, you know, far reaching powers over the German people. Um, and that the military also seized control in the middle of the war. Um, that even though Wilhelm II becomes the poster child for German aggression, he becomes the scapegoat for World War One. that throughout the war and throughout the period before the war, he had very little actual influence. So he may have been a poor choice as a spokesperson, but he had no day-to-day control. Very much like today, if you look at Queen Elizabeth II, She's the commander-in-chief of the British Armed Forces. But she has very little control day-to-day operations over the, the, the military of the United Kingdom. That's the prime minister and the cabinet. And so this was kind of my way of trying to jumpstart, not a rehabilitation, because I think that's a wrong word, but as the thesis says, reassessment of what Wilhelm II's role during the First World War was what really was his role in in the war itself? And realistically, should he be blamed for all the problems of the post-World War I era? And, and, and my answer was no. Which makes sense. I mean, any, there are very few national leaders who exert that level of control. And in that era, I mean, Europe was you know, liberalizing somewhat in that, in that period. And so it, it, you would think that with all the other countries around there, that, that, I mean, I I think that that makes sense. I I have never studied the topic obviously. And so your, your argument sounds convincing to me. And so I'm wondering, have you noticed since you've worked on that, has the general trend of historiography kind of gone that direction? Have you seen historians kind of changing their, their view of him as time goes on? Or are do you think you're still kind of an outlier? I believe I'm still very much an outlier, but I will say that we just got through the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One um, in November of 1918. Right now, we're kind of in the process of the 100 years of the negotiation of, tre- of the different treaties. And mm-hmm. I, think the 100th, I think the 100th anniversary of our ending the war with, with Germany, the U.S. ending the war with Germany's next year, the year after. So you are seeing some new scholarship being done, and there are some people. There are some people who are making the case that Wilhelm was not necessarily as involved or to blame as people want to make him out to be. 
mm-hmm. but I don't think that the historiography has really changed much at this point. I still mm-hmm. think we are very much in a situation where people are looking at it from an American standpoint of the 20th century. And if you look at the 20th century scholarship on Germany in World War One, it's this autocratic absolute monarchy that's running roughshod all over Europe. That was a British talking point, um, mm-hmm. a French talking point. It would be like us saying today, us going to war with the British and saying that Queen Elizabeth, how dare her? She's a warmonger. She's the supreme warlord, as he called himself. Um, yeah, she's the commander-in-chief, but she's the commander-in-chief in, in name only. It's the politicians that are making the major decisions. Right. Um, and people, people also forget that, you know, they always want to blame Wilhelm II and the Germans for starting World War I. But the reality of it is it was Serbia that opened fire on Austria, Austria-Hungary. And Austria-Hungary right. retaliated. And it wasn't until Russia announced mobilization and their mobilization was a two-step mobilization where they were going to invade Germany regardless, that Germany declared war and did their own mobilization. So, you know, a lot of this has to just come down to bad planning. And uh, <laughs> and the fact that they just didn't have good uh, communication. I mean, a lot of this, this, this was, you know, negotiated by Wilhelm and Nicholas II, the last Russian czar, writing letters back and forth to each other, trying to defuse the situation while their governments were making it worse. The German government led by the chancellor and and obviously the, the high command of the Russians were working to undermine the two crowned heads of states who were actually had a family relationship that were trying to work this out. And so... You know, sure, you can you can look at Wilhelm II and say, you know, here's the poster child of what an ineffective, baby-like ruler with with temper tantrums and and bad behavior can be. But he was checked in almost all of his supreme power by the the Parliament by the Reichstag. So I see some reassessing. I, I do see some changing over the years. But I wouldn't say it's been across the entire uh, scope of of research. Uh, do you have any plans for going forward with this research? I know that you said it was back in two thousand six, and I know that you've been you've you've kind of launched into your teaching career. But do you think at any sure. point you might go back to that and start to uh, expand on it a bit? Well, I I, ha- I have talked about doing um, starting a project with a friend of mine. Um, he is a professor at Tarrant County Community College. Dr. Robert Little. Um, we went to Midwestern State University together as master's degree students in 2003 to 2006. He is an expert in Theodore Roosevelt. Um, I'm an expert in, in Kaiser Wilhelm II. So we've thought about doing an article and we, we're starting the groundwork now on the relationship and a comparison and contrast to the leadership styles of the two men. And obviously, there's a lot of difference um, between (laughs) the two. Um, You know, one one was petulant, one was whiny. The other one could be accused of that, but, you know, was a little more competent uh, of a politician. Obviously, Mm -hmm. get elected to things versus the other one who just basically was born in the right place. So this is going to be kind of a combination of both of our graduate work, actually. Huh. Um, so we're, we're working on that right now. We met uh, 
two weeks ago when I was out of town, we met in uh, in Decatur, Texas for dinner and, and talked over that. And we're going to we're going to keep working on that throughout the, the spring. And if we can get an article written and publish somewhere under our, our names, then we've talked about turning that into a book of some kind at some point. He's got two young kids. I, you know, I'm, I don't yet, but we could. And so neither of us are in a major rush to get that, the, the book portion of it done. But the article, we're, we're trying to get it at least written by the end of the spring and hopefully out there for review and publication sometime in the fall, maybe in the next spring. I'm also working on a book um, right now on the history of Mardi Gras. This is more, this is less of an academic work and more of a um, project for, I'd say, I don't want to say fun. That's not the word I'm looking for, but more of a a casual reader for Mm. the history of Mardi Gras. As most people who know me know, I, I, we lived in Galveston, Texas for four years. We lived in Mobile, Alabama for four years and both of those places right in the middle of it is New Orleans. New Orleans is a little closer to Mobile, but you know, still. Um, and so Mardi Gras is a, a big part of me and my wife's life. And so mm-hmm. when I was looking at something to do, I wanted to do something fun. You know, historians are always looking at doing research and it always seems stuffy. And, you know, even, <laughs> even my film, the second research, I mean, you start looking at it and a lot of people's eyes, like my mother's eyes glaze over. My mother could have cared less about my master's thesis. She's proud of the master's degree, but could care less about the thesis. But this yeah. is something that my mother might actually write. So, you know, I think a lot, and I think that's very important for historians to think about is that, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times we write, most of the books that we write as historians and articles we write are not for the masses. They are for each other. Yeah. So like the the article that me and my friend are working on at the moment, that's written for you or for any of our colleagues at Southern New Hampshire University. Whereas this book that I'm, I'm working on right now, The History of Mardi Gras, um, focusing on Mobile, Galveston, and New Orleans Mardi Gras, which, by the way, Mobile is where Mardi Gras started. New Orleans is the biggest Mardi Gras, and Galveston is the third largest Mardi Gras. So that's why I'm focusing huh. on those three specifically. Yeah, don't tell the New Orleans people that it started in Mobile. They get really upset, but actually, <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. Um, but this is actually, I always say Mobile started it, but New Orleans perfected it. And and that usually calms down the, the ruffled feathers. But <laughs> right. this is a book that I feel that the common everyday, you know, just the casual reader will pick up and say, oh, you know, I wouldn't mind. My mother would pick up this History of Mardi Gras book and read it. Whereas the fall of Wilhelm II, the last German Kaiser, a 21st century assessment, that, that's <laughs> She's not interested in that. So, and I think that's important for historians to remember is, you know, we always, you know, I, th- I think sometimes a lot of academics, we we kind of get upset. We're like, oh, we need to get people more involved in history. We need to, sh- you know, stoke their love of of the subject. But then we write things that are so, to the average reader, obviously, so boring, mm. um, so academic, whereas something like this, you know, anybody could pick it up and go, you know, enjoy it. So that's, that's the project I'm working on right now. Um, Great. About a, about a third of the way done. I think I'm a third of the way, third of the way through the mobile chapters. 
Um, and then I'll switch over to the Galveston and then the New Orleans and then wrap it up. So that that's a project. That's that's my passion project, though. I've been working on that for about five years now. So mm. I don't know when it'll get done. <laughs> right. um, I hope to get it done soon. But, you know, it, it seems like it, it always gets kind of the back burner. But it's I think it's important to stay um, busy researching and writing, even if it's not part of your, you know, if it's not part of your requirements for employment, you know, a lot of people have the publisher parish and I, I don't necessarily, you know, like publisher parish parish myself, but I think to keep you sharp, you absolutely have to still be doing something in your field, contributing something in order for you to, you know, leave something lasting. Right. You know, cause none of us are going to get rich doing this. Um, <laughs> Yeah, this is not about, you know, amassing wealth, as I tell my students all the time. This is about making some kind of important impact to the field. And so if, you know, you, you write something and maybe maybe for 100 years, no one pays attention to it. And then 150 years later, someone picks it up and says, oh, my, this was a great idea. Well, you've made an impact 200 years down the road or 150 years down the road. Mm -hmm. Will you be remembered forever? No, you're not going to be in the pantheon of people like the presidents of the United States, but, to, <laughs> but to someone somewhere, somehow you will make some kind of difference. And, and I think that's very important. Yeah, that, that's right. I agree. And it's, um, you know, anything that furthers human knowledge is valuable in its own way, regardless of, the you know the accolades that it brings to the writer or anything like that but i think there's kind of a greater greater good to all of it even regardless of personal glory and all that so that's that's great and i think those sound like really cool projects and i hope to uh you know see final versions of those at some point and then um and then we can I do an interview so based on the book and all that <laughs> I, I hope so too so um, what is your, or have you decided on what your project, your final project is going to be for the uh, political science degree? You know, I, I have not. I've done a lot of work in polling. I've actually worked on some campaigns in, in recent years. That's History is my academic love and politics is my hobby. I love mm -hmm. politics as a general rule. And so I've worked on some campaigns over the years, helped people get elected to positions, anything from local mayor all the way up to a U.S. senator. Um, there's a U.S. senator currently right now that's serving that I helped run his campaign a couple of years ago. So um, that's kind of like my my passion is history, but I really enjoy the politics part of it. So I've, I've thought about maybe doing something on polling and how polling can be skewed or, or I've even talked about maybe doing something over the 2016 election and how the polls were saying one thing, but something else definitely happened. I think that's an interesting, there's a reason for it, obviously, but it's still an interesting phenomenon, you know, where yeah. all the polls will say something. And then the day of, it's a complete shock. That doesn't happen very often in American politics. Most of the time, the polls are right within about 2 to 3%. Um, and yet in 2016, they were totally wrong. There's reasons why. And I think that it it would be kind of nice to, to look at those reasons and 
and discuss them in an academic setting, if for any reason to to allow political campaigns in the future to maybe look for for red flags when it comes to reading polls. And I can tell you just from my my knowledge of polls, I was telling people two months before the election, I said, well, you know, Donald Trump's going to win the election and he's going to win it by this much. And this is why And people were like, well, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. <laughs> I, I was I was a little off. I, I thought that he would have maybe a little bit more percentage of the vote. But my my warning was correct. Um, and and when you start look when you start tearing the poll apart, yes, sixty five percent of people might have said that they were voting for Secretary of State Clinton, and you know so many percent said that they were voting for for Donald Trump. But then when you start looking at all the cross tabs, there were red flags, mm-hmm. you know, different things that didn't make sense, because a lot of times people will will lie on the overall question. Not lie, but sometimes they're embarrassed or sometimes they just don't want to tell the truth because sometimes it's just, it's hard, you know, giving up something that's so private, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, you're you're putting yourself out there, even though it's anonymous. It's anonymous. You're putting yourself out there. But when you start looking at the cross tabs and you say, okay, well, this person says they're voting for so-and-so, but they believe in this, 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 and this. Yeah, they're not voting for this person. You're almost sure that they're not going to vote for that person because they're going to go in and say, yeah, I told the pollster this, but this other person, I, it, it, no, I can't do it. And so right. there were red flags out there. And and so that's something I might want to get involved in and do because that does fascinate me quite a bit. You know, the, the idea that just how bad polls can be um, and how good they can yeah. be too. Yeah, and that, that's always kind of interested me too. Since since that election, I mean, the because beforehand they were projecting Clinton winning, as we all know, sure. and at the same time, Clinton still did win the popular vote. She just obviously sure. lost the electoral vote, and so it's kind of curious to see how the polls they were right in that yes. Clinton won the popular vote. It's just that the polls obviously didn't account for where those votes were happening (laughs) and because yeah she got a lot of votes but they were not in the right places if she in order to elect her to the electoral college and so i've always been kind of curious about that too it's always seemed like a weird kind of thing because yeah people a lot of people have said oh the polls were all wrong and like you say well if you look at them closely First, on the one hand, like you said, there are indicators that the people really weren't going to vote for Clinton or whoever. They weren't going to vote yeah. the way they said they yeah. were because they had a, some a on the other side too. And, yeah, and there was some on the other side, right? And so, but at the same time, there's also the fact that she did. They were fairly close at the national level, and so th- I think that is an interesting, uh, interesting project. And um, you know, again, if you go if you go with that, it, I think it'll be cur- interesting for us to have a, a conversation at some sure. point in the future to talk about how that played out. If if that is, I mean, no matter what your topic is, but I think that would be really cool for to sure. talk about. I mean, that's where I'm leaning now, but, you know, the, the, the wind could blow a different direction next month. So, you know, right. who knows? <laughs> and you've who got knows? time. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. So let's talk a little bit about your uh, career in history. So you mentioned earlier that you've been teaching pretty much nonstop since you got out of your uh, MA program. So can you talk a little bit about how you broke into the, the, the teaching gig and uh, how that's played out for you? Sure. Um, when I graduated from Midwestern State in May of 2006, 
I had been working for about six months at Sears in Wichita Falls. Um, I was kind of waiting for my now wife to finish her undergraduate degree. She was working on a chemistry biology degree, and she was due to be done in 2007. So when she was close to being finished, I started sending out applications, and I sent out over 80 applications for both full and part-time. Now, obviously, almost all the full-time applications came back rejected, uh, saying that uh, they wanted someone who had experience. Well, that's that's always, I think, even for some of our students will shake their head when they hear that, because, yes, we have that problem, too. You go to apply oh, for yeah. a job, and they want experience. And so I said, well, you know what? I'm just going to go for some part-time jobs and see what I can do. And as far as part-time jobs, I was a finalist for many. Most of them were in the state of Texas because we I was already there. It was just easy. And then I got two yeses. And, and it was actually kind of lucky because what we did is we moved in the middle. We moved to Arlington, Texas, which is between Dallas and Fort Worth from Wichita Falls. And from 2007 to 2010, I worked at North Central Texas College, which their main campus is in Gainesville, but for the first year, I drove from Arlington about an hour and a half to the Bowie campus, which is way out, way out in the country, way northwest of Fort Worth. Um, and then the last two years, I drove about 40 minutes to a place called Corinth, um, which is about it's between Dallas and Denton, where the University of North Texas is. So I was there for three full years and and. That was a great thing for me because I really learned a lot from my faculty advisor, Kevin Davis. As a matter of fact, me and him actually did AP readings together for a couple of years, too. So and I didn't mind that drive. That that commute was fine because I was so hungry and I just wanted to teach. I just wanted to be, I, mm-hmm. you know, for four, five, six, seven years. All I wanted to do was be a be a history professor. So I was willing to drive an hour and a half, two hours a day to buoy and then for 45 minutes, three, uh, three days a week to Corinth. So I did that for three years at North Central Texas College. I did it Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Now, my Tuesday and Thursday was devoted to my other college I worked at, and that is Navarro College. Some of our listeners may actually know Navarro College, even though it's a very, very small rural college. And I say small, it's a huge college, but it's in a very small town, uh, Corsicana, Texas. Some of our listeners may actually know it because there's a Netflix show currently running called Cheer that's about a college cheerleading squad. And it's actually about the Navarro College cheerleading squad. So it's kind of cool because this is this is a I mean, this is a community college that's got dorms. It's got a football team that's won national championships at that level. But it's in the middle of like nowhere. And <laughs> so for three years, I had I, I drove three days a week. I drove Tuesday, Thursday, and they did this thing. It was a Saturday class schedule, and it was actually really neat. I was the first instructor. I was hired as one of the first instructors to teach this Saturday thing. The classroom was the same. So you'd start at 8 in the morning. You'd finish at 5, and every hour and 20 minutes, the professors would switch. And so you would sign up for a full load now, obviously, some people didn't take maybe a class in the middle and they'd leave and then come back. But you would sign up for a full load and you could do your entire college on Saturday. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think I could have done that because I don't think I had the attention span. But <laughs> right. But here's what's funny about it is none of the other classes ever made. 
except for my history classes. Um, hmm. So I was the only person on campus, instructor level, on Saturdays um, from, I think it was 1 o'clock to 2.20 or something like that. But, you know, again, I, w- I was hungry. This is all I ever wanted to do. Looking back, yeah. I can't believe it. I only got one day off a week for three years. <laughs> Unless I did an ex- all my exams I did online, so I didn't have to go in. But like I said, I was just absolutely starved for to get my foot in the door somewhere. Uh, you know, right. that, that was the most important thing. And then in the spring of 2010, my life kind of took a dot, not a dive, but it kind of flipped over, you know, it kind of just changed completely because my wife found out she got into medical school um, and that she would be starting in the fall of 2010. And so we had to move to Galveston, Texas, so that she could go to UTMB, which is short for the University of Texas Medical Branch. So in the summer, after I taught my summer classes, obviously, I left my job at NCTC. I also left my job at Navarro, and we moved down to Galveston, and it took me a while, but I did find a job uh, teaching at Galveston College, started in the summer of 2011, and what was, what was nice about that was I actually didn't have any prospects. I was applying for jobs in the Houston area. I applied at Alvin Community College. I applied at all the Houston Community Colleges, and I was getting no's, no's, no's. And I actually met a guy uh, through a mutual friend, and I talked to him for about an hour, and we were talking about history and government and things like that. And he turned out to be the division director for the entire arts and humanities division at Galveston College. So he actually invited me to come in and sit with the department chair, which was kind of a weird setup because the guy that I met first was the division director, but he was also a full professor of government. And the guy I had to go interview with was the the chair of the history department, but the political science professor who was the division director was his boss. <laughs> it's always weird how that works with <laughs> academics, you know? Right. But they both, you know, we got along very well. The division director's name is Theron Waddell. It's actually Mathis Theron Waddell. And the the chair is a dear friend of mine, Dr. Larry Blumstead. We got along very well. Um, And so from 2011 to 2014, I taught on campus at Galveston College, usually teaching. They were nice. We we only taught Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So you either had Monday, Wednesday or Tuesday, Thursday classes. And so it was great because I could do Tuesday, Thursday. I have long weekends and I was still out there really getting to teach and hopefully working my way, getting my foot in the door for some kind of full time position. Well, then my wife, through the match, found out that she was being sent to do her residency in Mobile, Alabama. (laughs) Um, And at the University of South Alabama, uh, there in Mobile. And so in 2014, we up and left and moved to to Mobile. And it was at that point that I went totally online, which I didn't think I was going to like, to be honest with you. I've taught online. I've taught hybrid. I taught in face-to-face. I thought there's no way I'm going to do this. This is going to be awful. And I and I I was going to do it for a while, then I was going to find myself a place to teach on campus somewhere in in Alabama until we could figure out where we were going to go. And I absolutely loved it. I loved getting up whatever time, you know, within reason, whatever time I wanted to, um, you know, go into the office, check my email and then maybe going in and, you know, getting 
you know, showered and dressed and everything and being, you know, being able to do everything on my own schedule. We always talk about the students being able to do their work on their time, on their schedule, but it's kind of nice on the reverse side too. Right. You know, um, like, you know, if you have a doctor's appointment, you don't have to cancel class. You just, you know, make sure there's work to be done or, you know, you just go for an hour or two. Um, And so I, I did that for two and a half, three years. And this is how the SNHU comes into it. I actually got an email in my Galveston, I believe it was my Galveston College email that was from an SNHU recruiter. Mm. I I actually had never even heard of SNHU because I don't watch a lot of TV. Apparently, if I had, I would have known all about it because, you know, now I (laughs) know all the time. Right. But, um, and so I did a little research and I was like, well, you know, this sounds like a, you know, it sounds like what I'm doing already within reason. It's a little bit more structured in the way that, you know, in the other classes, I have to build everything. And this is kind of, you know, helped for me. And so I said, like, well, I'll give it a try. And so I started, I believe it was either 2000 and I think it was 2016 was my late 2016, maybe, or early 2017. can't remember exactly, but it's been about two or three years that I've been at SNHU. And so far I've, you know, I've really, in you know, really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, in Texas, I, I teach both sections of U.S. history, both Western civs. I teach Texas history. Um, I teach federal government and Texas government. And then at SNHU, um, I, I also teach both sections of U.S. and Western civ. But I also teach the World War One and the World War II class, which the World War One class I consider to be my specialty class um, mm-hmm. of all my classes, because that's obviously where my um, my. Uh, research and academic background is the most although world war ii you know i tell my students all the time world war one world war ii it's just one big war with a little 20-year truce in the middle Uh, (laughs) so so um you know i have a fairly there's other classes obviously i can teach uh but these are usually the classes i offer at any given semester and sometimes i teach three or four a semester sometimes i teach I think last term or last spring, it was, I taught 10 classes in the spring semester between SNHU, Galveston College and Navarro College. Um, My wife told me I'll never be allowed to do that again. Um, (laughs) I nearly had a, with, with the, with our grading uh, requirements and then the face-to-face requirements that I had to do for them. um, It was just, it, it was a little much. And part of that is because for, the last three years, I was the history and government professor for the Texas Juvenile Justice Department. I was being oh. loaned out by Navarro College, um, and I was teaching on Tuesdays and Thursdays, or Mondays and Wednesdays, depending on the semester. We, I would beam into anywhere from three to twenty sites in the state of Texas, and I would teach dual credit U.S. History One, U.S. History Two or federal government courses to <laughs> juvenile prisoners who were working their way through school so that when they got out um, at the end of their term, they would be able to either go back to high school or go right into college and and not be behind. And that was a face-to-face, that was a face-to-face thing. You know, I was on camera with them through Adobe Connect, um, hour and 20 minutes. I would lecture, they would ask questions. Very rewarding, but uh, you know that it was a lot of work. 
including yeah. with all the other classes I was teaching. So um, I recently stopped doing that. Um, and so I'm sure I'm going to miss it, but um, I'm not going to miss the extra workload for sure. Um, right. it, it'll, it'll be nice to pull back a little bit and have a little bit more time for me. Do you have any final thoughts for students with history degrees who are thinking of going out into the world after graduation? Do you have any suggestions or advice for them looking for careers? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing I I, I want to tell students, and this is not a more of a warning, it's just more of a soft landing, is that for, for students to realize that the golden age of the college professor has essentially come to an end in many ways. Full-time academic work exists. It's there. Mm-hmm. But full-time academic work is disappearing. The The rise of the adjunct class, as we call it. So I, I always tell students who are interested in doing you know, this type of job, I say, don't be disappointed if you never see a full-time job or you know, you hope so, but you have to really look for them and take your time and send out 80, 90. I did it. Send out 80, 90 applications. If you have to sell yourself because there's only three options. You either take multiple adjunct positions, you find a full-time job or you find another, you do something else in the field and teach as kind of your hobby. And Mm. so you kind of have to really look at that and you know, kind of figure out where you want to go with that. In my case, I like the multiple adjunct positions for the most part. Would I turn down a full-time job? Maybe not. But I like the flexibility of it. I like to be able to, you know, do my own thing, take a semester off if I want, come back and know that, you know, I'm, I might not have a class or two, or I might have four. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I really, I really like that, but some people that's not for them. So, you know, there, there's other things that I have a whole list of things I share with my students who, who want to, to go into history. I say, these are the things you can do with a history degree. And you know, the, the old saying is you can't do anything with a history degree. Well, then you show them this list and it's just all these different careers you can do mm-hmm. all these different things you can do. And I say, look, I said, if teaching isn't for you or, you're worried about a full-time position or you don't want to work multiple adjunct positions. There's so much more things that you can do with a history degree. I feel a history degree is one of the most versatile degrees you can have. I, I disagree with many people who say that it's, it's, it's not, you know, this whole idea of STEM today is that, well, you know, the arts are great and all, but you really, you really have to have a science, technology, engineering, or math degree to really make it. No, I think that history is one of the most versatile degrees. You can do almost anything with a history degree. I, I truly believe that. Um, the other thing I, I like to tell my students all the time when when we're talking about breaking into the career is don't think about, and this is terrible to say, but don't think about the money that you're going to make. <laughs> a, a career in history is not a get-rich scheme. Right. You can do well, but your true wealth has nothing to do with the car you drive or the house you live. And you're not going to be able to afford a mansion. You're not going to have a $60,000, $70,000 luxury vehicle sitting in your driveway. I mean, unless you marry well, which I always recommend to people. <laughs> uh, 
I mean, you know, that, 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 but a career in history, it's not about the money that's in your bank account. It's about the people whose lives you change. I had a student in 2011 who she was from a divorced family. Her brother had just died, I think a couple of months before she took my summer class and she was a hot mess. Hmm. Sweet girl, but a hot mess. And I held her to a certain standard. And by the time she got done my summer 2011 course, she had an A in my course. And I mean, she wrote me when she was graduating. She wrote me this wonderful letter. I actually printed it out just so I had it in front of me when we we talked, because it when I look at it, I it always makes me tear up because it's a, it's just a wonderful letter. How, you know, she talks about, you know, it was my faith in her that pushed her to to be able to 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 do it. And not only did she get through my class, she ended up graduating. And I look at that, that, that is, if I never make another dollar in the field, which obviously I want to, but if I never make another dollar in the field, this letter that I got in 2012 or 2013, when she graduated, this is one of my rewards. This is one of my rewards in life. And I've got a I've got a, a stack of them from different students who have written me over the years who have said, maybe it was just one little thing that I did in class. I have another student who wrote me a letter one time that said she was a, a first-time college student. She was an older student. I think she was in her late 40s, early 50s. I was probably in my late 20s, early 30s at the time. And she said she walked in, she saw me, and she almost turned around because she's like, oh my God, I can't do it. I, I I can't do it, but she decided to give it a chance and she sat and she listened to my lectures for a couple of weeks and she did very well in the course. And she wrote me to tell me, you know, just how important I was to her life. Now, this is a 40 something year old. Maybe she might have even been early 50s at this point. This is someone who was twice my age, approximately at that point. And to tell me that my dedication and hard work made an impact to her or this other young lady whose brother had died, who was obviously, you know, so overwhelmed with grief, but that she was able to do so well in my class. These are the things that when I retire, these are the things that I will have done that I feel are more important than any amount of money that I make or any actual contribution I make to the field. I mean, if I ever write a book or anything, to me, that's inconsequential. It's the people that that you reach. And, and some of my Southern New Hampshire University students send me emails, and many of them are, are the same thing. And these are the things I always tell my students when they're looking at becoming a, a history professor or a government professor. I always say, a career in academics is not a get-rich scheme. It's the lives you change, not the money in your bank account that really, truly matters. It's not, it's, you know, an adjunct instructor can change somebody's life as much as a full-time professor can. All you have to do is be listening to them, looking for them. And the last thing I would, I would say, depending on the state that you're in, and we have students from all different states of the union, is that if you're in the state of Texas... And, and I say this in, as a Texas specific for some of these students that are, are there, um, a lot of your graduate schools don't believe in getting a second, t- uh, second field. Um, and when you come out, you're not necessarily 
marketable in the state of Texas. Some state, you know, some states, obviously you are. So I always tell my students, if you're able to get a second teaching field, you can get 18 credits in something else. For example, I have a master's of arts and I have 18 credits in political science. It means I can teach history and political science. Mm-hmm. Do it because it makes you more marketable, especially in the small rural community colleges. Um, if I was if I was moving back to Texas tomorrow, I'd probably go back and get 18 credits in geography. Then I could teach three subjects because when you're looking for a full-time job in the state of Texas, the double or triple specialty will will help you immensely. So don't be afraid to ask your department chair, hey, I know I've got 33 or 36 credits to get the Masters of Arts in in history, but what can I do to fit in 18 other credits in something else? Just so that, just so that you have a little bit of, you know, a, a little bit of padding. Because, you know, when I was going through graduate school, the reality was you got the history degree and you left. Um, now the colleges in, in Texas are actually stressing this a little more, you know, make sure you do that. So, and, and some States that, that that's not, um, that's not sound advice, but since we do have some students that, you know, are in big rural States, don't be afraid to ask, you know, maybe you're getting your master's degree here at SNHU, ask your, 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 your advisor say, you know, is this a possibility? I mean, I, I don't know if it's a possibility at SNHU, but a lot of, universities it is just ask the question it never hurts to ask the question because the more marketable you are the better and and we want and i want all my you know someone asked me one time they said you know what do you think about you know doing this i said i want all of my students to become history professors (laughs) right Uh, i know it's not going to happen but i i would love every one of them to do it um and i and i will i will root for you and i'll pull strings i'll do whatever i can to help you but just make sure you're setting yourself up in the best position for yourself. That's 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 all I, I I recommend to my students is just make sure that if you're going to go down this career path, you know what's coming and that you set yourself up for the most success you can. And if you do, you'll have a, I mean, I have a great life. I, I think that this is this is my life's work. I don't rec- I, I don't regret it for one second. Has it been easy? No. But nothing that's worth doing is ever easy. I mean, I, I think you have a PhD in history, correct? Yes. Um, not to not to interview you, but I mean, so so I mean, you could you could attest to the hard work and and that you have to do in order to get you know that level of a degree. It's not an easy thing, but the rewards are great. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, thanks for all that information, Scotty. Do you have anything that you'd like to recommend for us this week? Sure. Um, one thing I, I recommend to a lot of my history students is there is a book called An Encyclopedia of World History. Um, it was originally published or edited by Walter Langer. Um, today, it's now updated and edited by Peter Stearns. I always tell my students all the time, if you're going to have any book sitting on your desk at any time, this is a great book. And the reason why is because, yeah, it's an encyclopedia. You know, they're not they're common knowledge. They're, they're not something you're going to be using for research, but they're a great outline tool when you're writing a, when you're writing something and you're trying to do it chronologically, the encyclopedia of world history is essentially your outline. 
And so I tell students all the time, you know, I've got a copy of Langer's version on my desk. I've got a copy of Stern's bigger, newer version on my bookshelf behind me. To me, it's it's maybe one of the most important books in my library. Um, another thing I, I do recommend for mostly this is for graduate students is just make sure you have a reliable version of the Chicago Manual of Style, the, the newest mm-hmm. version. Um, so many, so many students, and this is at all the colleges I work at, um, come into the upper levels and they're still doing MLA or APA. And if you're going to go on to, to have a career in history, you need to learn, um, Chicago manual style Turabian. And the best way to do that is to have the book. Um, I know if you take my classes, I do a lot of extra little mini lectures on the Chicago manual Turabian um, just so that, so that people can get it. Cause I always tell students, if you can learn it in the undergraduate level, while you have a crutch and that crutch is me, um, you will do very, very well. Don't wait to graduate school and just do MLA or APA in undergrad and just say, well, I'll learn it in graduate school because there you're less likely to have a crutch. Um, so you mm-hmm. want to make sure that you do that. And then I have two websites. I really, really highly recommend, um, to students and and also to faculty that may want to use them. The first, if you're looking for any primary sources, um, you know, documents in, in history or law or diplomacy, I highly recommend the Avalon Project through Yale University. Uh, a yes. lot of a lot of students are not aware of this. It is by far one of my favorite websites, and it has everything from the Amurabi Code all the way to the 9-11 report. I mean, this is the entire scope of world history. So this is, you know, I don't know if you use the Avalon Project much. I'm sure mm-hmm. you probably do. Um, I know this is, a, this is a link that is in my class every week um, to the Avalon Project. And the other one that I highly recommend for students who take the World War I class with me or whoever um, is the Brigham Young University's World War One document archive? I find that this is the this blows anything else that exists out there out of the water. This has hmm. all the major primary source documents covering the lead up to the war, the conduct, and the 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 uh, operation of the war itself all the way through the negotiations to end the war, the treaties, it has it all. I, I and, and this is one of those hidden gems. I didn't even know about it until about a year ago, uh, the BYU World War I docu- document archive. For World War I students, I think it's important. I think for anyone who's wanting to research World War I, it's, it's, it's a great tool. And for faculty members, for faculty members who teach the World War I class, this is where you can get primary sources to to hand to your students. You know, we have a lot of students who in the World War One class, there's a final paper they have to write. And, you know, I always give them a list of books that I own that they may be able to use primary and secondary sources. But I always make sure at the bottom of that list of sources that I can recommend, not require, but recommend that they use for their paper. I always put this Brigham Young University World War One document archive. It will make your life easier. It'll make the student researchers life easier. It's got everything. And I, I've checked. It's got almost everything you could possibly want for a primary source in World War One. 
Yeah, that's great. Um, I've been trying to build up a, a library of sources like that also for my modern American uh, class. And I've got probably, I don't know, 15 or 20 good solid collections. And so it's, it's nice to have those kind of ready to go, especially when you've got a lot of students coming into your class that may not know what they want to write, you know, papers on. Yeah. And so it's really, really good to have a collection of links. You can say, Hey, just go browse through these and see what jumps out at yeah. you because all of these are great and something is, something's going to have to grab you. And um, yeah, so that, that that's great. That's a good, good. And the Avalon one, I've, I use that pretty frequently in my classes too. I use that to uh, direct students to, like you said, they have a whole surprise. <laughs> Surprising amount of stuff in there. Um, but yeah, you know, George Washington's teachings or something like that. You can just send them out yeah. to that. They've got all that stuff there. It's great. To me, it's for teaching U.S. history or even world history. It's it's my go-to Avalon project at Yale University is my go-to uh, website. I, I just I wish it existed when I was in graduate school. Um, from 2003 (laughs) to 2006 if only it existed um if only the internet existed if these students even understood what a note card was um i just happened (laughs) to move my i just moved my thesis yesterday i found it in the box the note card box and um yeah it's about 30 pounds probably of note cards things have gotten so technologically so much better for the researcher and something like the Avalon project, the Yale University uh, online database, it just takes so much of the research time out of the equation. It's right there for you. Realistically, I, I, I've told some of my my students that, you know, finding primary source, finding good primary sources or finding the ones that you want are sometimes a problem. But because of places like the Avalon project, finding primary sources is it's no longer a problem. You can find them. You just have to know where to go, and if you go there, you're you're in good shape. Yeah, that's great. And actually, one of uh, the recommendation that I want to talk about tonight is actually similarly useful. Um, it's not free, but what I'm going to talk about is the Bedford series in history and culture, uh, which is a. It's published by uh, Macmillan. It's published by kind of a standard textbook company. But what this series is, is a series of books. Uh, And each book is on a specific topic in American history. And the book is, they're usually fairly short, 150, 200 pages, where they will have about two, maybe 20 pages of introduction to a specific historical topic. And then the remaining 100 pages or so are all primary sources related to that topic. And um, these things are really useful for students because they're, they're very specialized. And so just as an example, I'm, I'm looking at the newest releases in this series. And one of them is on defending slavery, pro-slavery thought in the Old South, which is a collection of stories, articles, um, even like medical journals where they tr- the pro-slavery Southerners came up with these crazy justifications for slavery. And so yeah. it gives a 20 page introduction to it and then spent, and then just gives like another 150 pages of just Southerners in their own words, trying to justify slavery to themselves and also to justify it to people outside of the South also. So defending slavery is one of them. There's one on American working women in world war two. There's an entire book dedicated to Brown versus board of education uh, the Milai massacre. There's a there's a book devoted to that where all of the there's all primary sources with the the brief introduction and and there's it's on topics across. It's not just American history stuff. There's also there's stuff all around the world. There's um, Jesuit relations, uh, which is the um, you know the Jesuits in the Americas back in the colonial era. 
Women's Rights, uh, Chinese Exclusion Act, Scientific Revolution. There's books on a huge variety of topics. There's probably at least a hundred of these things published by this point. I've been kind of collecting. I started first started getting them back when I was teaching in grad school because it, it really helped me to kind of get uh, primary sources that I could hand out to students. And then eventually I just started assigning some of these books to students. And now in classes like my current one, where each student is writing on different topics, I just basically put together a list of all these things and saying, you know, these are really good places to start because you're li- because all of our assignments require secondary sources and primary sources. And this in this, you kind of get both in one bundle. And so it's a really good way to introduce, get introduced to a historical topic, but also kind of be handed a whole bunch of really relevant curated primary sources that can be really useful in writing research projects. So the Bedford series on history and culture by uh, Macmillan Press, and I'll post links to that. And I'll post links to the things that you talked about in the episode notes once this episode goes live. All right. Well, thank you for uh, joining me today, Scotty. I, I appreciate the chance to visit with you. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, or suggestions for future episodes, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. If you're feeling generous, feel free to leave a review and a like on uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher, whatever system you use to listen to this podcast, you know, if you feel like it. For Scotty Edler, I'm Rob Denning. Have a good weekend.